Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Risking Failure. I am Mark Dobson. I have my good friend here, Michael Dunn. Hello, Mick. Good day, mate. How are you? Very good. And uh, I know it's freezing cold over there and you spend your life running from your vehicle to to work and then back into your little open fireplace. Well, here, it's the last day of summer, but we've all still got tans, Mick. So um, just throwing it out there for all you freezing Americans right now. <laughs> Come and put a shrimp on the barbie with us. Oh, my goodness. Oh, mate. Spring's on its way. There's there's a little bit of hope in the air and there's something important about that. You've got to go through the struggle to appreciate spring and that's one thing that's good about it. So Yeah, look, the winter's coming here, so it's the last day of summer today. But we discussed last week productivity. And you and I both set ourselves some little targets. Yours was that you were going to measure your time, and I think you were going to roughly allocate five hours a day to work. And I was going to look at my goals or my the direction I set at the start of the year. I was going to look at that every day. Now, I did mine. How did you go? Awesome. Correct answer because, you, you know, you're live on air, so <laughs> yeah. you, you don't want to tell the world, I stuffed up. I'm a loser, baby. Well, if I screwed up anything, it was that I don't think I did five hours every day. You did less? Yeah. Whoa. Jeez, there's people listening right now and they're just pissed <laughs> off. <laughs> they've just done a 13-hour day. They're stuck in traffic and they've just decided to no longer listen to risking failure. Yeah, I know. Well, I'm talking about productive, potent work, Dobbo. I'm not talking about like I worked, you know, each day the way that I said I would, but my Monday was just off the charts. It was really productive every moment that I was in the office when I got there, I just blasted through stuff. And what happened was like, I went into the office with a list. I'm not a big list maker, but when I get like, feel like I just need to really tackle some stuff, I end up doing this comprehensive list and I just pick seven things and decided I just focus on making sure no matter what those seven things got done in that allotted time. And I comfortably got them done just in time to leave. And then the next day I got back and realized I don't have another seven that were as lofty as the ones the the previous day. So the next day wasn't as productive. I felt like I was actually filling more time and I got about an hour to two hours of really like productive work. And the rest of the time was, I was actually trying to create productive things to do. And it was a little bit that way yesterday as well. Today I actually had less hours, but in the couple of hours that I was in the office because I had some meetings to be at, I just blasted through stuff. So I really, very, very interesting exercise. I love it. Yeah. I think that what most people are actually experiencing is that the having the tasks hanging over their head is what they experience a lot. They're in a meeting and every time you have a meeting, you're thinking about the next things you've got to get done, but you're not getting it done. And and the truth is when you sit at your computer, if that's the tool of choice, or you hop on the phone, you can actually blast out the necessary things quite quickly. Occasionally, there's something that really requires you to really focus and you know allocate a fair few hours. But I reckon most of the things we're doing are menial tasks. And I think that you know you had the experience of working, say, nine to five, or for want of a better term, for a big organization and then transitioning to your own enterprise – I've essentially always worked for myself, but I've seen other people go into their own enterprise as well. And there is a transition that has to happen because we start to look at how everybody else is doing it and we think we need to duplicate that in our day-to-day work, unaware that most people are living in a state of busy, not productivity. When you just said then, you know, you knocked off seven big things, over the years I've learned that that's actually all you really need to do each week 
is just knock off a handful of big things. And most of the things that we're spending our time doing are menial and they're not potent and they're not leveraging us and they're not sending us forward in a radical way. And I think people, for at least I hear from my friends that go to work, they get frustrated because at work, they're often not even getting the time to do those potent things because there's so many stupid things that we all tell everybody is really important. And if you live in a community where everybody says, this series of emails is important or this paperwork's important, and then they just keep telling you how important it is and they create a loud enough voice, you end up being in a community where you've got no other choice but to keep your job. You've got to do these things that actually aren't important. You're starting to get seriously like business-wise here, Mick. You might actually like liberate your whole life. Well, I, I do feel like I hit something that was like realizing that I have a lot to learn on this subject, more than I ever realized. And so... This came up two times this week. I actually met with a couple of different people, a couple of friends. And today I actually was having lunch with somebody and this exact conversation came up and it wasn't because of the podcast. It wasn't because of the discussion. It just sort of worked that this person was talking about the same thing in terms of having just opened up a business and transitioned and actually stating to me that like, realizing that I just kept doing what I was doing before and and I'm only now after six to eight months decompressing this person saying that they've just finally decompressed enough to like take a step back and look at what they're doing and realize that they don't actually need to spend as much time and I certainly had that experience unfortunately for me it took me a few years to get to this point where I remember when I did start a company the very first thing I did when I transition was I just spent the same amount of time that I was always spending working, just now working on my company. And, you know, we use this metaphor of like just throwing darts at a wall and you don't even know where the dartboard is yet, let alone where the bullseye is. And it's like, it's dark and you're just throwing stuff and just trying to get something to stick. And it's like throwing a hundred darts just so you can get the five or 10 that you need that put food on the table. And after you've thrown enough, you start to get a feel for what works and what doesn't. And, I don't think that's necessarily a super productive way to start a company, but I think the reality is like in the world of entrepreneurship and I reckon it's in the world of just about anything. When you're starting a new job, you just, it's like you got to go out swinging and just start having a crack at everything before you start figuring out what's productive and what's not. Yeah. I liken it to our youth when we're young. We have this energy, so we've got energy as a resource that we can burn and we need the energy because we're completely unproductive. And as you get older, you don't need the same amount of energy because you've got smarter and wiser decisions and you can be similarly as effective with less effort. And like I know I can go to three meetings and achieve in a week or in a few hours what you know a young person might achieve in six months because they've got to develop the rapport and the credibility and knowing what to say and all those sorts of things. And I agree with you. When I started my business, and, and you were involved in some of those early days as well, I had zero idea what I was doing from a business model. Like I had zero idea. I look back and realize what I was really doing was I was developing my capacity to develop people's talent in a really potent way. I just thought, as I told people like what I did, I didn't even know how to sum it up. I was just like, yeah, I just... I can talk about this or we can present about that or I'm passionate about this. I had so many topics on my early brochures that I could come in and help you with and I didn't really know how to help on any of these topics I realize now. I just had this raw passion to be helping people and to be educating and and I just had this raw energy. The business model I had was terrible. Like I had no idea where the dollars were going to come from. I had no idea how marketing worked, 
how accounts worked, how the lifespan of a customer, how to bill. It was a disaster. And it's only now that I realize I've mastered my skill set. And I think that's what much of business is, is understanding exactly what product do you deliver and how do you bill for it and where is the customer. It's only now that I've got that clarity and particularly the skill set set that I can spend my time coming up with business strategy and and I don't have to worry about can we deliver anymore. And I think that, you know, when you said you're throwing those darts everywhere, in the early stages is you've gone out on your own, the business hasn't found its own identity. And, you know, with those other people you're talking about with other conversations, they might take six months to transition because some of these people, which is quite quick, I think, but they already know that they're a designer or they're an accountant or, you know, they're a builder. And because they already know that, they've just got to start to work out how to do it their way and get rid of all the the unnecessary tasks that you think you should do. So many people just sit at their computer and just go, what am I going to do? And they don't even know. Yeah, I talked about that too. And for me, you know, the nature of my work is such that it's, I've, I've definitely spent two, three years or more just figuring out how to answer the question of what do you do? And I think many people struggle with that as well. But, you know, if you can't even bring clarity to that, it makes it pretty difficult to figure out how you're going to spend your day, right? <laughs> so difficult, so difficult, yeah. But you seem to be in a strong position now where you understand shift energy. Like, you seem to be in a much stronger position now. I do, yeah, no, for sure. But it takes a lot of time to get there and a lot of the same conversations of people asking, what do you do? So I think you're right in that some of us are fortunate enough to just kind of be in roles or, or go into something where you just, I'm an auto mechanic and that's what I do. And it's how I do it that's unique. And you're not needing to spend a ton of time trying to educate people on what you do. You just go out and do it because people have a need for it. That's an enjoyable process into itself. But that's not really what I th- think we were talking about last week. What I think we were talking about as I reflected back and listened to that a little bit was lifestyle design. And that's the context of the four hour work week book that I'm listening to or reading. But it's really about stopping and saying what, like looking at what you're doing. And in my case, that was working 40, 50 hours a week and saying, well, why am I doing that? And the answer to that most often for me was because I think I'm just supposed to. That's what you do. And that's pretty stupid. <laughs> well, it is because this is authentic success. Authentic success is how do I want to live? And I'm doing it that way. Where perceived success is what do people expect of me? And I think what we do, sometimes what we do is when we're trying to work out, when we don't know what we want, when we haven't chosen, we just look to our peers and we copy them. I agree with that. Society in general. And I'll tell you what else is that when you're doing all of that, you're listening to everything. This is what I was doing. <laughs> listening to everything that I could get my hands on to help me figure out what I should be doing and then start getting anxious about all the stuff I'm not doing. And that wasn't a status thing. It was just, a, oh, I'm not doing enough of this or enough of that. I'm not, you know, showing up in these places enough. You know, I'm not doing enough trade shows. I'm not doing enough sales calls. I'm not talking to these people or this sector of the market enough. I'm not, I'm not, not doing enough. And what I learned, just if I look at this week in particular, I would say out of any recent week that I've had over the last few months, this has been the most balanced week I've had in a very long time. Because I spent a lot of time with family, a lot of time even getting some stuff done around the house midweek, which I never do. 
And I actually jumped up a little bit. At my, my plan was to do the halftime and then next week to do it in addition to cutting out email until midday. And I tried to just start having a crack at that. What I, I did definitely learn was that I have a lot to learn um, in being comfortable with stuff like that, like not checking email until midday. And I actually felt pretty good about the starting the day at midday. That wasn't a problem because I was keeping my, I was very busy and productive outside of that. So I was actually quite productive all day long. It's just that I wasn't, you know, working on a laptop. I was, you know, doing stuff, you know, taking care of my kids for a couple of hours so my wife could go and do something, that kind of stuff. So I was totally engaged in something the whole time, which was really important. But I did notice that I still had to wrestle around with what I'm doing and tell myself that this is okay to do. So much of this is a psychology, Mick. So much of this is a psychology where it's a conversation you're having in your head that it's okay to live a life that is enjoyable. Exactly. And on top of that, what I've caught myself with realizing was how do I get to a point where this is no longer an experiment, but it's a way of life. Because I was like, what I don't want to do, this is what happens when a lot of people go on a diet, right? They go on the diet and they live it and they feel great and everything's awesome. But they, there becomes an end point when they reach a target or a goal or whatever it is that they're looking for. And it's, it's that point in time because they're like, I'm just going to give this a shot. And then they don't actually know what to do with it once they get to that point. And so it just sometimes falls apart and it just goes back to where it was. And you go, well, I know what to do. I just don't do it all the time anymore. You know what I mean? Because they haven't shifted their way of being. Now, I've talked about this in early episodes and I don't know that sometimes I feel like I'm harping, but I also, I'm not sure if it really resonates with people, but this is, who are you being? See, if you're being healthy, then you automatically will just take that apple from the fridge. You'll automatically keep eating in a healthy way. But if you're dieting, which is an activity, it's not a way of being, the dieting has always got a beginning and an end, then you're in trouble. It falls over where we want to set, you know, if we say, I'm going to live at 90 kilos or I'm going to live healthy, then that's just this indefinite growth or indefinite you know, joy or way of being and, and, and lifestyle. And I know when I set my goals at the start of this year, I actually set them for my life, which I'd never done before because I realized that every time I set goals, I'd end up falling down. Like I'd end up, uh, you know, well, they'd end. They'd end, I'd get them and then what? Like, for example, you've just had this week where you've done that and you get the end of the week. Now, next week could go back to the same old. So, unless you choose a way that you want to live and, and be deliberate about that, and it doesn't necessarily mean time allocation, it means a philosophy that means your time can be packaged a whole lot of different ways, but it's a fundamental decision-making process. And that fundamental decision-making process at its core is who do you want to be and how will you be as a boss or as an employee, if, if you're an employee and you're listening, or as a husband, as a lover, as a partner, as a brother, as a father, as a sister, as a mum, like who do you want to be? Because I know that I've lived and I continue to live the lifestyle I'm in. And actually, sometimes I wonder if I'm being a little bit lazy. And one of the things I learned from Brene Brown this week, because I've been listening to her like crazy, she says that it's really important to have play in your life. And I thought that was really powerful, that idea of actually allocating time when you don't actually have to have any deliberately directed outcome. 
for the time. You're just messing around and you're happy for it to continue indefinitely. You know, if you start to say that you're, not you, Mick, but anybody, we, and me included, you know, that I'm a playful person, then play starts to come in to your world. And as soon as you're doing stuff that continuously doesn't feel like play, you, you stop doing it. So, I think that's the next step. I do too. There's, some, there's another element of that that Brene Brown was talking about and actually came up in a conversation I had with um, somebody, that, that the person that I met with today, and that was creativity. We would talk in briefly and I realized that even just this project is sort of a creation. It's, an, it's art, right? I mean, you're, you're producing something you're, it's, and that's been healthy. And I realized upon reflection for just how long I had spent a time frame between end of school and college. And there's been about an eight to 10 year period where I just shut out all forms of creative exercise outside of the work environment. And so I agree the play thing is important, but I also think creativity is too. And there's that balance there. And, and sometimes I've even found it. I found myself sitting down with my kids I only did this this week, actually, and they were just coloring. And they said, oh, can you draw a house? So I just started drawing a house, and like 20 minutes later, <laughs> like on their coloring book, I'm like, I've drawn a full-scale house. Like there's like all the details on the windows and the door, and the kids are just like, wow, this is cool. And it was actually quite I don't know, restorative, whatever the word is. It was just like, it was nice to, like, I realized my brain had switched off for five to 10 minutes and I was with them obviously, but I was just doing that. And it just reminded me that I don't do that enough. That's a great example because I think when we go to uh, restaurants and they've got, you know, those crayons and the, the, you just can't help but start drawing and doodling and squiggling. And I think what Brene Brown says, which is really interesting is, is that we need to make creativity important. And when she first heard it, she makes it really, you know, she's very clear about it. She said, when I first realized that people needed to be creative, I just thought it was just absolute nonsense. And she also didn't have the capacity when she went to a painting class. She just couldn't even start because she said, well, it's not going to be in a, you know, in a fancy gallery and it's not going to be sold. So, what's the point? And, and the lady said, just start, just start. And, you know, she burst into tears or something and realized that she hasn't given herself that permission just to create, which is, it's it's weird to get your head around if it's not your instinct. But I have been thinking about that. And like last year, I was renovating a house, but there is an instinct in me to draw and to paint, but I'm not really moving on that. And I think part of it is because I am trying to create a couple of certain pieces, but I started to notice in me, I've always said, when I retire, I want to make furniture. Then some people say, well, why don't you just make furniture now? And I'm actually not really set up for it, but I'm actually almost set up for it. And it's my brain's just started to click over. And what I'm actually noticing I want to do first is restore old furniture. And I really just love the idea of it. But I'm also realizing I don't have the skill set really. Like by most people's standards, I do. You know, like I've got the tools and all those sorts of things. But I know for what I want to do, I need to step it up a notch. I need some more knowledge, some more skill set. But I started only noticed just in the last two days, Mick, that the creative element of me hasn't really blossomed because people look at the work that I'm doing, like you and I talking here, it's creative, but it's something that I do a lot of. So, therefore, it's not necessarily as as rewarding. It doesn't feel as refreshing as it might for someone else. It's a bigger risk. 
but it's an interesting journey. And But when you look at it from a, a lifestyle perspective then, and so I think when people are transitioning into their own business or they're even got their nine to five job, what we tend to do is we tend to work out how to schedule. So, right now, what you did last week was said, right, I'm going to allocate five hours. And that's a schedule-driven psychology and it's powerful and it's useful and the like. But for longevity and flexibility, I think we really need to put these categories that we just want to make sure that they all get some space and they may vary in the amount of time. So, if we have this awareness that we want to play every week, be creative every week, be highly productive work every week, has some time with our kids and the like, if we've got these categories, we don't necessarily need to give them durations. We just need to make sure they're allowed. I think I used the example last week when I was helping a whole lot of people in an organization, they wanted to work less. And I said, well, you only work less if you've got to be home earlier. So, what do you want to do with the rest of your life? And if you don't know that, there's no way you're going to leave the office earlier because you've got nowhere you need to be. And I think some of the things that we could put into our life is this awareness that I haven't painted for four hours this week or I haven't gone to my, I don't know, macrame class or my, I haven't gardened and that's a creative element. I, I must admit when I started this experiment, I was definitely wanting to start at midday until five and that was because of the way of, you know, just the path of information flow throughout the day that generally, you know, that's when most of the stuff happens and I get responses from things and so on and so forth. But another thing I think really at the root of that that I was telling myself was I wasn't quite comfortable leaving the office at midday because I don't know what I would do with the rest of my day. Like I would kind of come home, but yeah, I wouldn't know what I'm going back to yet until I'm, I don't know, it sounds flaky, but just when you wake up and you're in it and you're, it's just great and you you're already doing what you need to do because it's the same as when you're just trying to get out of the house. It's this frantic moments in the morning and you're trying to get everything organized and all of that. And then just eventually try to get some space to be productive for an hour or two to whatever, get some stuff done around the house or just spend some time with the kids. It felt like that was easier to fill that time and make it productive. Cause I do feel like if I leave the office earlier, it's a little more challenging. So that strategy was more comfortable for me to act on. But the conclusion so far that I've drawn was that I'm not convinced that I even needed to be in there every day at 12 o'clock. I know I can be, and I know I can fill that time without a problem. But what I realized was that critically this week, at least for this particular week, I probably could have just gone in for maybe two, either just two of those days or about two hours each day. And I would have been fine. Gee, people with nine to five jobs, they've got to be, it must be tough listening to this stuff because they don't have that freedom. And also, they're in organizations where people keep piling on work and there must be a sense of most of this stuff doesn't even matter. And, and sometimes it does matter. Like, don't get me wrong, there are some weeks in my life where I will just work ferociously till all hours for a long period of time because I've got to get a project across the line and it just takes effort and work. So, there's always going to be periods of time we need to put a huge amount of effort in. You just need to work because you're starting something. It's just, it takes a project that requires a huge amount of effort. And I think it's important that when you hear something about the four-hour work week, it didn't start as a four-hour work week. You worked this ass off at the start. But I think that if we start to have the awareness that we can build something over time, say four or five years, and you can really start to create a vision 
of what you actually want and realize if you took five years to build it, you would have time to play and be productive. It doesn't all have to get done now. I think the reason we work so hard is we think that everything has to get done by the end of the week, the end of the month or the like, and they do if they're small tasks perhaps. But if you think, well, I want to build an income of say a million dollars a year, just to pick a number. If you just ponder that and just pause and go, well, how would I do that? You could spend the first three or four months or a year just looking for the solution to how you could earn a million dollars a year. And then you start to put things in place. And then the following year, you start to put the next things in place. And I can tell you, I'm, I'm doing that in my own life is that with Brad and with the two of us are working on a couple of projects. And I said, Brad, let's not try to get this done in the next four weeks. Let's allocate the whole year to having this so well thought through and so well set up that next year we get the rewards. Let's just be patient. And that takes the heat out. That means that I don't feel like I have to work through the weekend. It means I can still have a barbecue with all my friends and the like. And I think this duration, this awareness of building over time gives you the freedom to not feel like you've always got to be doing something. When I was talking about finding or concluding that really only needed a couple of days. I, I don't actually mean that, you know, really all I need to do in my own life is work for, you know, one full day a week. Perhaps I could try to pull that off, but I don't think that would actually, it's not really what I want to do anyway. But for somebody that's still in an office environment, I think the principle still applied it to me. The conclusion was just that out of my entire week, all that I did was just pull away all of the stuff that was filling time. And then even then, like by cutting that out, I found that about half of the leftover time was purely potent. That's really all I mean. And I think that you said that in the last episode, we're talking about that, that I don't know that I could grow that anymore. I think that would just be the amount of potent time that I have and it's about all I could squeeze out of like really raw potent work. And then it's a matter of like choosing how to most productively spend the rest of the time. And the truth is that it's no different for me in in a lot of ways to anybody else that's say working for somebody. There's just stuff I have to do running a business and then there's things that we all do have choices on what we could do. And, you know, I think that maybe we convince ourselves we don't, but somehow we manage to spend four or five hours out of the week doing something other than work in the office place. So mm. we're already doing it. <laughs> That's what made this week different for me because my goal was to look, you know, the thing I promised to do off the back of last week's conversation was to look at my goals every week, every day rather. And that just changed my week because I didn't get sucked into doing four hours or five hours on something menial. As a matter of fact, there's a few times when somebody sent me an email and I had to start responding and I was just getting annoyed because I was like, oh, this is not directly linked to my goals. So, I was really aware of giving them a limited amount of time, getting it done if I thought it was going to be a crisis, if I didn't, and then coming back to specific things. And one of the things I noticed this week is that I spent about six to 10 hours listening to audiobooks. Now, that would seem recreational, but really, if I go back to the start of the year, well, not recreational, but it doesn't necessarily seem like work. But at the start of the year, I made a commitment that I would simplify my work so that it didn't cut into my capacity to love or my capacity to learn. And I realized I spent, you know, pushing 10 hours listening to audiobooks. That's actually what I want to do. 
but that wasn't necessarily work. Yet when I go and consult, I've increased my knowledge and, and I'm working with my friends and loved ones. I've got, I've got a new knowledge available to me. So that's where I started to realize that I really believe that there's only a certain number of productive hours in the week and those other periods of time really need to be allocated to be either learning, playing, relationships, like family, some health, I guess. I, I don't know, but it's, I just think there's only probably about 10 really productive hours in a week, except for the odd month or two in the middle of the year, you know, each year where you just go berserk and you've got to do it. That's what I'm thinking anyway. But, and the other thing I noticed I need to put in is that I don't play enough. I definitely don't play enough. That was playing, as much as we came from a really happy family, I'm not sure that we ever played. You know, mum and dad might not think of it like that because, you know, we did spend good time together as a family. But as I understand play now, that you would just all want to do it together for a long period of time. I don't know if we played as an instinct. I think the instinct was that we could be productive, that we could do some work. Because dad's, he's a working machine, you know. He loves, he's always mowing the lawn. He's always building something. And I think I gravitated towards learning that, which has been awesome. But the play thing, I don't think they matched. We did talk about Brene Brown's book that you mentioned. What I found interesting in her definition of play, I guess, was this time when you're not even aware of time. You've just fallen into play and you're in that zone. And that's what I identified after really listening to that. In particular, when I was listening to her book, I found that I'm not doing anywhere near enough of that. But on top of that, I couldn't clearly identify what it is that allows me to lose track of time. Well, I just I spoke to somebody about that during the week and I asked them and they said, I've got no idea, no idea. But then later on, when we're having a cup of tea, she says, oh, this is something I made ages ago. I'm like, what do you mean? And she wheels out a sewing machine with all these incredible things that she makes. And I'm like, can you do this endlessly? She goes, oh, I can never get enough time doing this. When I asked her, what is it that you do with ease and you can just produce and it's effortless and you, you want to do it indefinitely, she couldn't think of it. Yet an hour later, she's expanding on it and it's so clear and it's so obvious to me. And I said, but surely this is the thing. And she's like, oh, I suppose it is. And that's one of the thing I, things I've said, like on the TEDx talk that I did years ago and the like, I always say about talent, it's a thing that you do with such ease, you value it the least. And because you value it the least, you just can't even see it. You go, that couldn't possibly be my talent. That could, or, and talent, I believe, is a recreation as well. It couldn't possibly be the thing. Like some people spend hours on YouTube and they love it. And they go, well, that, that couldn't be it. And I go, it actually can be. But I think we have a conversation with ourselves that says, no, this couldn't be it because it's not productive. It's not important. It's not valuable. It's, we literally just don't recognize play. Like we actually can't even see it in our life when we're doing it because we've just been convinced or conditioned that there's no value in it. And even if we start, we feel like we shouldn't be doing it. And I think that's the big one is giving yourself permission. We talked about this other episodes, giving yourself permission to be allowed to play. That, that's big that we don't even, that we can't do that. We work our butts off so much. We do all these things that we've got more time. We never have any more time. And then we finally got free time. We feel like we shouldn't be allowed to enjoy it. it it's absolutely extraordinary when you really like real look at the stupid rat race we're in yeah especially when you look at how much time is structured mm. you know even outside of work and it starts whittling down to very very small windows of un 
structured time. Yeah. I tell you what I've learned to do, and this might be helpful for others, is I started to learn how to let my life unfold and not have too much of a plan by doing it on my weekends. Like in the past, I used to work every weekend. I didn't even know what I was doing. I just felt like I should be working because I didn't have enough money. So, I just had to keep working. Then I started to go, you know what? I'm not lo- no longer working weekends at all. And occasionally now I've got a speaking job or something I've got to do like this Saturday, I've got to do one. But essentially, I don't work weekends. And what I learned to do was if I had one activity to start with on a Saturday morning, which was usually just breakfast with some friends or maybe going for a run with somebody or something similar. And then I would just see what would unfold after that. Because after doing that, I'd have an emotion that would sometimes mean I wanted to watch a movie or I wanted to go out with some people somewhere else or I wanted to potter around the backyard. And I found if I just had one thing and just let it unfold, I didn't have to live my whole life like this. I could just live the weekends like this and develop the awareness and the fitness to be able to navigate by instinct. And then I took it into my work. I I definitely did not start doing this in my work first. Yeah, and I think that's interesting you mentioned the weekends because that's probably a good place for people to start, you know, if you're maybe not in an environment where you have complete flexibility and control of your time during the week, then it's probably a pretty noble effort to try to just not work on the weekend or change something to that effect. But creating that time to play, I think you're totally right. Like Brene Brown had a good example about going to the pool with the family. And obviously when they go to the pool and they go swim or they go hiking, it's it's still a project, it's time allocated, but it's so much freedom once you're doing it. I also think though with the the letting of the weekend unfold and starting to realize uh, how to play, but also how to be productive. I think we've got to start recognizing the conversation we're having in our head. When I'm not sure what to do next, what am I asking myself? Because often we'll say, oh, what should I do? And should's just the worst motivator. Like should's just somebody else's agenda. Should is never what you want to do. But if we fundamentally ask ourselves a different question, which is what do I feel like doing or what do I want to do? rather than what I should do, that changes things. And granted, sometimes you will ask yourself the question and you won't know an answer. And I've learned in those times to say, of the options that I have available to me, which one do I want to do? Because sometimes you go, well, what I'd love to do is hop on a hot air balloon and fly across wherever. And you go, well, that's not available right this second. So, of the options available, what do I feel like doing? But we've just got to let go of that word should. Because when we're working nine to five and when we're fixing the house up for the appearance of the neighbors and all those sorts of things, we're doing it because we feel like we should. And I really believe there's an emotional fatigue that builds up then and it just slowly disintegrates you and we don't even realize that we're doing it. So, I think that awareness of that conversation we're having in our head is is crucial. Yeah, I think you're right. That was definitely what I noticed about my week was the self-talk. That was what I was mostly keenly focused on, was like, what am I telling myself about this week? And there was a lot of that. What should I be doing? Or is this okay? Or thing is that you're only having a sense of if it's okay or not when you compare it to someone else, when you ask someone else. But I always say, you live in your life even when no one's looking. Like, if you're having a good day and it feels fulfilling, there's a difference between pleasure and fulfillment. You know, pleasure can is nice. There's times to, you know, get a hug and have chocolate and, you know, have a beer. But there's a point where that becomes gluttony. Fulfilling, though, you can never OD on fulfillment because sometimes mowing the lawn and doing a particular well feels fulfilling some days. Other days, it doesn't feel fulfilling if you know that somebody inside needs your company. And mowing the lawn at that time seems like a dumb thing to have been doing. 
So, this fulfillment thing is really big. And I think that's where you can start to ask yourself the question off the back of fulfillment. What, what, what would feel fulfilling? Um, that's the psychology that I tend to lean towards and try to avoid the comparison. Uh, I haven't mastered every day, but I'm probably doing it more than most just because I've lived my life like this for so long. But it's still an ongoing learning. It never stops. It never stops. Yeah. And I think as a closing thing, if I'm like microanalyze my week, the hours that I spent not being hyperproductive was actually spent doing the darkroom dartboard thing on what else would be fulfilling to do. I spent quite a bit of time. I don't think I was creating busyness. I was just having a crack at all different stuff, just sort of seeing what else I should be doing that's super important. I don't necessarily think there's anything wrong with that, but I've found myself doing that at fleeting moments, and I don't give that enough time either. Those things don't get to develop because I don't give them enough mental capacity to see where it could go. What you're talking about there is this ability just to be silent to allow your soul to be heard. Like when you say, you know, I just allocate time to what else is important, there's just this not busyness, there's this not distraction. And the things that I do that people could put in their own life too, not that I'm a model citizen on this, I've just recognized where the little opportunities are, is you can drive in the car in silence. When you're at the lights, you don't check your phone. You know, when you go to the toilet, you can just not read and you don't have to be on your phone. You can just sit. And these times of silence actually allow your soul to be heard. You know, granted, on the toilet, there may be some other things you can hear as well. But, <laughs> but do you know what I mean? Like, we always have noise. We always have busyness. We always have the TV on and the, we walk in the house and the radio goes on. And, and I can honestly tell you, my life isn't like that. There is so much opportunity for silence in my world. Now, I don't have kids, so granted, you know, it's, it's a little easier. But when you're driving somewhere to pick someone up, you don't have to be on the phone and you don't have to be listening to the radio. You can just simply be in your own headspace and it can feel weird. And you, sometimes it's a case of going, all right, I'm going to do it for a minute <laughs> and then I'll turn the radio on because I'm freaking out. And I was in a coffee shop yesterday and this, I heard this woman behind me just saying, and she goes, yeah, I just freak out when I'm on my own. I, I just like being with people all the time. And I was like, geez, that's got to be a tough way to live because, you know, the moment you're on your own, you freak out and you're scared and that's crazy. And how can she possibly hear her own soul or her own, like granted, I like being around people. But so I think the, the journey is about just allowing some silence. And when you reduce the amount of time allocated to being productive and just go, I'm going to be productive this time, it's okay to have the other parts in silence and get used to, wow, I don't have to do anything. I'm allowed to just be. I'm allowed to walk somewhere instead of drive there. I'm allowed to I'm allowed to spend time reading this book or I'm allowed to potter around the garden and take so long just pulling out little weeds and I'm allowed to potter. You know, I think that's oh, I think that's where the genius is. I think that's where our, all our genius is. I think that's when we start to recognize what we're really good at, what we really like. I think we connect to ourselves and I think we've got more to give people because we're not so damn busy. Mm, this is big, man. It's usually when I say something like this and I realize it's really big that your mum makes a cup of tea or there's a dog going in the background or you're just like, oh, sorry, mate, I just ducked off to the bathroom. Not today, mate. Complete silence. I'm just letting you be alone with your thoughts. And- <laughs> you're an idiot. 
You're an idiot. Honestly. Thanks, mate. Thank you. Well, look, this is interesting. So, what's coming up now is next week I've got my goal setting day again. So, um, I did it with a bunch of people last year and this year I've got a different bunch of people and we just allocate one whole day every two months and I love it, can't wait and that really is a good example of allocating a whole day just to growth. We've got no agenda except we might turn up with some questions we want to bounce off people but we'll just listen to each other and we'll just get ideas and and be witnessed and just ponder things with no agenda for a whole day. It's awesome. I can't wait. So, I'll have some gold to tell you about next week. Excellent. I look forward to it. Yeah. Well, you sound really passionate about that. It sounded like you just said it out of courtesy. Thanks, mate. <laughs> I'm like, this is massive. This is a big part of my life. You're like, oh, good. That's really nice, Mark. I'll look forward to that. I might stick that drawing up on the wall with my kids' drawings. Thanks. Jeez. <laughs> oh, anyway, yeah. Well, I hope you have a great week. Yeah. I hope you get smashed and have to work 12 hours a day. <laughs> Uh, just for anyone listening, when we first started recording this one, Dobbo was like, the, the, the last thing he said to me before we hit record is like, oh, and by the way, Mick, this is going to be the most exciting 40 minutes we've had in our, the most fun we've had in our entire lives. And I was like, oh, well, it's no, no pressure. It's all, uh, you know. <laughs> I so, just, I'm, I'm just, just surprised they even managed to talk in the episode as we began. Because I was like, oh, my goodness. Am I supposed to be doing backflips while I'm talking to Domo right now? What do I do? Oh, you know what? Forget it. You can't even do it. You can't even do that right. Can't even have fun. Like, forget it, Mick. Just go and you had all that time on your hands. You couldn't even get something decent to say. <laughs> so, look, some other things that I lined up too. I lined up an interview with Sean in a few weeks. And Sean is a really close friend of ours from when we were all kids and now we're adults. And Sean has a condition of which the name I can't even remember at this exact moment. ALS. ALS is very degenerative, but it means that, you know, they've given her a lifespan of about three years, three to five years, but basically her muscles just stop working progressively and she never knows which one's going to stop. And she is just having her whole her physical ability just disintegrate and her friends and family around her are watching it and she's 30. And it's an extraordinary journey she's going on and she's able to communicate it. And I spoke to her yesterday and she's keen to share her story and what it's like. And she's funny though. She goes, yeah, but I sound drunk. And I was like, you do sound drunk because she can't, doesn't have the same level of speech. And so, people will be a little bit shocked when they hear us hanging out because I'll be giving her a hard time the whole time because we've always interacted like that and always played. But they'll be going, you can't be making fun of that handicapped person. I'm like, she's not handicapped. She gets sick. So, uh, it's going to be a cracker because she's got some real wisdom from being genuinely faced with her mortality. Uh, it's pretty big. So, I've lined that up. And I've got a couple other interviews lined up too that are going to blow your mind, Mick. Yeah blow your mind they're going to be the best 40 minutes we've ever had Dobbo that sounds that sounds bloody fantastic I cannot oh, wait. yeah the sincerity is oozing out of you it's unbelievable <laughs> mate all right well it's been fun anyway I, I, <laughs> no just kidding mate. I'm looking forward to it I'll uh, look forward to talking to you next week and hearing about the goal setting stuff so thanks again for taking up the Skype call mate it was good to talk to you all right. And if everybody wants to set their goals between now and then and have some come to the table with some awarenesses, I might spit out some of the ideas that we use to develop at what we were do- working on. If you've actually thought through some objectives for the next, you know, three, six months, particularly who you want to be and how you want to play out, I reckon next week it would be valuable to have that awareness because I reckon I'll be able to drop you some bombs. Sounds good. Yeah. 
Oh, thanks. The centenary's getting better. You're awesome. <laughs> Forget it. You know what? I'm just going to go. You know what? I've got to be somewhere else. I've got other things, you know? You're not the only person I bloody hang out with. I've got about 12 Skype calls lined up here. <laughs> All right. I'll check you next week, mate. Bye. Are you saying goodbye or what? <laughs> See you, mate. You've been listening to Risking Failure. To join the community and access more free content, news and updates, subscribe at riskingfailure.com.